Thank you, Grady. Super exciting, and not just because Redeemer has an official SWAT team. Uh, that's the secondary thing, but uh, that is a beautiful ministry. We're really excited about, about all of that. All right, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. If you are new here, visiting, checking things out, you're popping into the middle of the book of Revelation. Don't worry, we're not weirdos. We are weirdos, but we're not that kind of weirdo. Um, we're, we love God's word, we love all of God's word, and we love Revelation because Revelation is ultimately all about Jesus, okay? Now, you happen to be coming in at the beginning of a particular vision, so it won't be so hard to get, I think, what this vision is saying and how it fits into our lives today. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to understand and embrace and delight in your holy word? This is breathed out by you. We know that it is perfect and it is written for us to understand and to be transformed by. So Lord, we pray that you would do what only you can do, accomplish great things in us as we seek to read and understand and live in accordance with your scripture. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ain't nobody really believe in the boogeyman anymore, right? I mean, not around here anyways. Other cultures, they still believe in the boogeyman. They still teach their kids the boogeyman, right? And the boogeyman, if you don't know, in all cultures all across the world, the boogeyman is essentially a creation of parents to control disobedient children, right? The boogeyman is the scary story that you tell if you don't, uh, if you don't do what's right, if you do what's wrong, well, the boogeyman is going to get you. In fact, uh, Jen grew up, my wife grew up in Germany, and uh, not exactly a boogeyman, but, but sort of. Uh, she was read these stories that had depictions, like, you know, illustrations in them, and one of the stories was about the scissor man. And the scissor man was the threat for kids who sucked their thumbs. And in this illustrated, detailed, illustrated book, uh, there's a little kid sucking his thumb. My mom's like, you better knock it off or the scissor man's gonna come and cut those thumbs off. And the kid's like, okay, ma. So the mom leaves and the little kid starts sucking his thumb again. Door is kicked open. You can watch, you can see the pictures. Door's kicked open, scissor man, giant scissors, cuts the kid's thumbs off on the floor with blood. Boogeyman. She loves that book. We still have that book. We have that book. We read that to our kids too. Why not? We, we don't really believe in the boogeyman because it's, it's really not the most effective. Well, it's probably not the most righteous method of parenting. Um, 
But we, we know that the boogeyman isn't real. We've kind of dismissed it. Other cultures have continued to embrace it. In fact, the only way in which the boogeyman exists in our culture today, by and large, is through popular culture, film, television shows. Probably the three big boogeymen, you probably, some of you know what they are, right? It'd be Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers. These are the boogeyman that cannot be killed. They cannot be stopped. They just keep coming after you and they're going to get you, particularly if you're doing drugs and other illicit things as a teen, right? That's what the boogeyman does in our culture today. But in our dismissal of the boogeyman, which is a good thing, it seems like we have done, to get done away altogether with the personification of evil. Like even Christians don't really believe in the devil. I mean, not all Christians reject the devil. It seems to me that most Christians believe in the devil, but not really. It's like we believe in the devil, but the devil is sort of like an appendix issue in the back of our theology. You know, yeah, it's a thing, we read about it, but the devil, for most Christians, bears no real relevance and poses no real danger to our lives, which is a devastating mistake. There is an evil entity. There are evil entities that are much worse than boogeymen. And that's sort of what I want us to think about today is the danger of the devil. For the next two weeks, in fact, we're going to be looking at this. And here's the principle for the next two weeks, the principle that I want us to grasp. I want you to know this and embrace it because I think this summarizes really the, the point of this passage. And it's this, Satan wants to destroy you, but Jesus promises to deliver you. So one is a desire and one is a promise. Satan wants to destroy you, but Jesus promises to deliver you. So here we are in Revelation. We'll see it here. We're starting a new vision. Uh, now, the book of Revelation is essentially a collection or a series of visions. And these visions are parallel, right? They, they are essentially telling the same basic story over and over and over again in a cyclical fashion. So it begins with Christ, oftentimes in his first ministry, goes all the way to his second coming, and then it will describe some of what's happening in between. It's called progressive parallelism in some of the commentaries. And so each vision tells you this basic story of, the, of what Christ is doing now, and the theme that runs through all of these visions, and the theme that runs through the book, we've said it a hundred times so far, I hope it's sticking. The theme of the book and the theme ultimately of these visions is the victory of Jesus and the church over the devil and the world. That's the theme. We see it here as well. The book of Revelation was written to Christians. It was written to Christians to understand, to experience, to believe, to be changed by, which means it was written to you. It was written to Christians who were undergoing persecution and distress. It's written to Christians who are in the midst of tribulation, trial, and temptation. It's written to you, it's written to me, that we would wake up and see reality, not as it is perceived in this world, but as it really is behind the curtain. It's written to us to not only give us a clear perspective of our lives and spiritual warfare, but also to strengthen us to persevere through it all. Now today, in this vision, we're gonna look at three characters, right? You see these three characters. It's the woman, the dragon, and the child. Now, uh, even people that tend to interpret the book of Revelation overly literally, which I don't think is a healthy way of interpreting this book, uh, and I don't think it even meshes with the genre of literature that it is a part of. But even people that are overly literal in their interpretation of this book get to passages like this and they have to conclude, well, this is clearly symbolic, 
right? There's a lot of symbolism here. And that is what we see, the woman, the dragon, and the child. First, the woman, in these first two verses, you, you, you see what her appearance is like, right? Clearly symbolic, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Clothed with the sun, sounds beautiful, sounds majestic, sounds glorious. I mean, this is an overwhelming picture of something that is beautiful. She has the moon under her feet, a, a crown of 12 stars on her head. This woman represents the people of God. This woman represents the church of Jesus Christ. And not just the church in the New Testament era, but it represents the people of God from the beginning all the way to the end. Those who believe, those who follow, those who worship the one true God. Now, we don't always see the church in this way, beautiful, glorious, and even royal with the crown. A lot of us tend to see the church as, well, the way some of the prophets describe the people of God in the Old Testament, corrupt, wayward, untrustworthy. And they're certainly true. There are abuses in the church. There are healthy churches and good churches, and there are bad churches that are no churches at all. And it's easy for us to gravitate towards these negative images of the church because there is so much corruption. But what we're seeing here is how the church really is, like in its purest form. We're seeing how God sees his people, beautiful, glorious, and royal, dressed in the sun, above the moon, stars for a crown, sun, moon, and stars. We've seen this before. Actually, it comes up quite a bit in the Old Testament, but there's just one interesting place that um, in, in Genesis 37, this is uh, Joseph. You know the story of Joseph, right? Joseph and his brothers, uh, the sons of, of Jacob. Uh, Joseph was the youngest and he was favored by his father and he had dreams that he probably shouldn't be sharing with his brothers because it made him look very self-important. And it led his brothers, or it didn't lead them, they, out of a motive for evil, sought to really kill Joseph. But just listen to how this ex explanation of the dream unfolds. Genesis 37, verses nine and 10. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now that sounds maybe bad enough. It sounds a little like self-important. <laughs> the sun, moon, and stars are bowing down to you. But they interpreted it even a bit more personally. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, why is this dream that you have dreamed? Or what is this dream? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? In other words, his brothers, his family, were understood to be the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down before him. So here we have this, this picture of the church Right, the, the church of all ages in glory. And this woman should not be seen, certainly exclusively, 
as Mary. I know there's a, there's a temptation to do that because, well, first of all, a lot of Catholic scholars have spent centuries arguing for this, um, but it also, well, it's like a mother and her child, like Mary is the mother of Jesus, so that makes sense. But we understand even contextually that this isn't Mary because of what this woman does after the child is born. We know that it is the church. Mary, though, is a part of the church, so it's okay to understand that there is relevancy there. Now, this woman, who is beautiful, glorious, and royal, is pregnant. You see this in verse 2 of chapter 12. She was pregnant and was crying out in pains and the agony of giving birth. She's about to deliver. She's about to deliver a son. The church, the people of God, at a particular point in time, right, produced the promised offspring that would save sinful humanity. And this promised child has been promised from the very beginning. We can go all the way back to, to Genesis chapter three, promised to Eve, right? Your offspring will crush the devil. Your offspring will crush the serpent. It was promised to David in 2 Samuel chapter seven, verses 12 and 13. Listen. When your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers, but I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is ultimately a promise about the son that would be delivered by Mary. Christ comes from the people of God. Promise to Eve, promise to David. It's pro he's promised in the Psalms. Throughout the Psalms, there are all these messianic promises about the one who would come and deliver it. He's promised in the prophets, like in Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and we shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The promised child to redeem the world is coming through the people of God to bring about redemption. Now, here in, the, in this vision, we see that the, the, this church, this woman, is in pains, the pains of childbirth. And some scholars are arguing like, well, the, the, the pains of childbirth reflect the, um, the persecution of the people of God, especially right before Christ was born, this intertestamental period between Old Testament and New Testament, and there's probably a lot of truth to that. But these pains of childbirth seem to also be, and maybe even more so be, a reflection of the agony that the believers had and how desperate they were for redemption to come. We need deliverance. We need salvation. We need the promised Messiah to come to make things right. We need the kingdom that is not of this world to be established so that we can be set free. So here is a woman, the church, glorious and beautiful, because of how God made her about to give birth. And then we read of the dragon in verses three and four. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. This is a great dragon and he read. It's a red dragon which is the, maybe the coolest kind, right? The red dragon. Now, the red dragon, uh, red more than likely uh, in, in this sort of literature, uh, frequently symbolizes war and violence. In fact, you can just go back to Revelation 6, 4. Remember the four horsemen? The second horse was a red horse. It was a horse of war and violence. This dragon, this beast, this devil is a violent killing machine who has evil 
intentions. And you see what his plan is here, right? It says that his tail swept down a third of the stars from heaven and cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. This dragon is Satan, the devil, Beelzebub, much more than a fictional boogeyman. He has seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. A lot of people spend a whole lot of time on the deep significance of these numbers. But honestly, the, the scholars that I, I, I tend to really favor and, and think make the most sense biblically keep it pretty simple that these numbers like 10 and 7 represent completion, right? Like, like this is a being, this is a dangerous entity who is complete in his conquering of the world. He is powerful. He is some kind of ruler. He wears a crown. The devil is called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the ruler of this world over and over again in John 12, 31. Listen, John 12, 31, and Jesus repeats this a few times. But listen to what he says here. We just looked at this not too long ago. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. How is he the ruler of the world? Right? Isn't God the ruler? We've talked about this, right? And we understand that God is sovereign over all, but Satan has seemed to exercise a kind of dominion over this fallen creation, both in deceiving people and leading people away from the truth and, and creating affliction and distraction and temptation for the world and especially for the people of God. And it shouldn't surprise us that the devil is ruling the world because Adam and Eve were tasked with the responsibility to rule over creation and they blew it. We blew it. And so the devil is a prince who is powerful and wreaking havoc. And it says that his tail swipes and takes a third of the stars and casts them down to the earth. And this is, this is probably one of the more difficult to pin down passages in terms of understanding what it really specifically means. And sometimes these images don't have a super specific pinpoint answer. But there are two basic options that come up with this. And, and the one that I favor is, is that, that this is probably a reference to the, a third or approximately a third, like a portion of the angelic beings who wound up rebelling and following the devil's lead. Because the devil in his purpose to devour, to destroy, to lie, to kill he is aided by the fallen angels. There are others that would argue this is really probably a, a reference to uh, the, the devastation of the people of God in measure, these stars that are falling really refer to uh, the, the Christians, believers who are being persecuted and even martyred. Either way, this devil is such a powerful and manipulative being that he has great influence. And the dragon's aim is to devour the child. He wants to kill the one who is born. He wants to end it. He says he, 
I mean, it says that he's, he's waiting, right? He just, he, he sat, but he stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he might devour it. That's his aim. That was always his aim. Ever since Genesis 3, when the serpent was in the garden, the aim was to destroy the offspring of Eve, who would be a descendant of Abraham, who is the, the, the descendant of, of David, the Messiah. His aim was to destroy. In fact, the devil has been manipulating people throughout history in order to kill this child, even before the child was born. He would do anything to end the arrival of the Son of God. I mean, think of Cain killing Abel. We think about Cain killing Abel, and we think, like, man, Cain was a jerk. He was selfish. He was totally, like, he was, he was, I mean, why would he kill his brother? And we understand that there's a whole lot there, right? There's this breakdown of the family. There's this, there's this, this cor corruption of faith and, and this jealousy in his heart. But make no mistake about it, the devil is seeking to interrupt this line that would ultimately produce the Messiah. Pharaoh killing all of the male children when Israel was enslaved. Yeah, there's, there's, there's immediate causes for that and a reason for that in his own twisted mind but this is the devil at work behind the scenes seeking to cut off any arrival of Christ in the book of Esther you've got Haman plotting to kill all of the Jews you got Herod the Great when Jesus is actually born and Jesus is born and the wise men show up so Jesus is about two years old listen to Matthew chapter 2 Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. He had heard about this coming ruler and Messiah and wanted him dead and certainly the devil was at work behind him. Of course, this shouldn't be a surprise because that this would be the ongoing hostility was promised also in Genesis 3. Remember what God says to Eve, I will put enmity, that is hostility between you and the serpent and between your offspring and his. We've got the woman, the church, delivering the Messiah. You've got the dragon who wants to devour and destroy this child. In verses five and six, we read about the one who was born. Listen to verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Jesus, the child, was born to rule, to reign. Now, we know this. We've been, you know, spending a lot of time in the Bible. We know that he is the king of kings and lord of lords, that he established a kingdom, that he is the, the one who reigns over all things. He sustains all things by the word of his power, and he has a redemptive reign in which he is making all things new. We, we get that. But there is a specific emphasis here. He will rule with a rod of iron 
This is a reference to a number of other passages, but one of the famous passages is Psalm chapter two, verse nine. We can start in verse six, though, for context. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the, of the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is a messianic psalm. Speaking of the, the son who was to be born, who would reign. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. To rule with a rod of iron here is a reference to judgment. A judgment of evil, a judgment of the wicked, a judgment of the devil. This is the one who came to conquer. So Satan would clearly want to devour this guy. You got to get rid of him. So does he do it? Does Satan devour the son? No. Because the son is taken up to God's throne. The devil doesn't destroy him. In fact, the devil is conquered, is overwhelmed with the birth and what we don't read about, his life and his death and his resurrection. And in his ascension and his being seated at the right hand of God, he has overcome it all. The devil had all of these opportunities to destroy the child who would save sinners. And he couldn't do it because you cannot conquer Christ. He is the one who rules with a rod of iron. Now, I know you might look at this and you'd be like, well, why doesn't it talk about his death and his resurrection? I mean, we're, we're, we got the devil waiting for him. And okay, so here is Jesus. He is born, but he is then taken away. And it sounds rather quick. Well, keep in mind that this is a vision telling a particular aspect of the story of redemption. It's implied in there, like all that Christ did between his, his birth and his ascension. Uh, there's a lot implied there. In fact, it's been talked about again and again and again in other visions in this very book. Christ is the sacrifice that saves a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But it's an assumed reality in this vision it's assumed that at this point, we have enough information to understand that the devil was already defeated the moment Christ was born. Really, the devil was already defeated the moment Christ was promised in Genesis 3. But Christ is born. It's game over because now he's here and you can't stop it. You can't stop him. There is no hope. And his ascension is his victory ascension into heaven after having accomplished redemption. So really what we have here is a description of the beginning and the end of his earthly ministry. So everything in between is assumed. Jesus arrived. The devil wanted to destroy him. He couldn't do it. Jesus ascended into heaven. Wow, okay. So Jesus wasn't destroyed. He isn't killed. Relief. Whoo, glad that's over. Uh, it's, it's just it's not, right? Just like those scary movies. I just like those scary movies. I remember, I remember the first time I saw Halloween on TV. I saw it on TV, I think, the first time. 
uh, very early 80s. I was watching it, and, the, and uh, spoiler alert, uh, the guy in the mask is shot by Laurie Strode. He falls over the balcony. Or maybe shot by the other guy. I don't remember. It's been a while. Anyways, Michael Myers is shot, falls over the balcony. Whoo, okay, bad guy. We didn't think we could kill him. He's finally dead. And then at the very end, they look over the balcony, and he's gone. And then that John Carpenter music plays. And you're like, ooh, he's coming back. And then you had a sequel, and then a bunch of really bad sequels after that because the boogeyman keeps coming. Uh, in a much more real and high stakes way. You are living in the sequel here. Now Jesus has ascended, the devil lost. He's been conquered. But here we are, part two, and the devil has now fixed his attention squarely on us, on you. Look at verse six. And this is what we're gonna really get into next week. So we're just gonna tease it here, verse Six, the woman, the church, the people of God, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Yeah, Satan's attention is, is on us. The church fled to the desert, to the wilderness, to hide, perhaps in some senses, for testing, sure. But when you look at the, 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 the biblical story, what happens in the wilderness? Well, you, you've got Israel in the wilderness before they enter the promised land. You have Elijah going to that same wilderness. You have Jesus going to the wilderness in which he's tempted by the devil. And so now here we are today in the wilderness, in the desert, and what happens there? Well, you become utterly dependent upon God when you're in the desert because you've got no other hope. Dependent upon God and his word and the means of grace, we depend upon him for sustaining us and nourishing us, providing for us. I mean, in the desert, we have this promise of God's protection, his provision, because the devil is gunning for you. But we have this promise, this promise in Matthew 16, 18, right? Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It doesn't mean that they won't try. The devil's a trier. He's got a motor. He's amped, he's invested, he's interested we have this promise of God's protection, right? Satan does want to destroy you, but Christ promises to deliver you. In Christ, we have protection, provision, and nourishment. So let me just say this before we get into the, the deeper part of this next week. Whether you know it or not, you are in a fight. You are in a war, a spiritual war, and Satan will use everything in your life as a weapon against you if he can. He wants to weaken you so that he can wreck you. This means he will use everything from persecution on one hand to simple temptation on the other in order to lead you away from your hope and your confidence in Jesus. You are being attacked. Do you really think that the temptations that you were afflicted with only come from your flesh and your heart? Primarily, they probably do. But the devil even uses those things to push you in the wrong direction. 
If you know, if you can begin to know, like, hey, listen, I've got an enemy who wants to destroy me, and I, I had better do something here, you're going to have to know who your enemy is. It's not enough to know, like, oh, well, there are bad things that are happening to me, and I don't really know what to do. You've got to know, like, well, who, who is my enemy? And you can talk about the world, you can talk about your own flesh, but you'd better not forget the devil. He has specific strategies and schemes that he uses to hurt you got to know your enemy because unless you know your enemy, you can't fight your enemy. And you are called to fight your enemy. He's not going away. He's not going to give up. He ain't going to get bored. He's not going to be like, wow, you know what? Uh, I've been trying for a while and, uh, you know, they're just kind of doing what I say. I guess I'll leave them alone. The devil doesn't work that way. As we fall to his will and his temptation, he rejoices in the victory and seeks to claim more territory. He's not just going to go away if you try to ignore him. So you've got to know your enemy, you've got to fight your enemy, but you do this by following your Savior. You primarily do this by trusting in the Savior who conquered that devil on our behalf. One last passage of scripture I'd like you to be thinking about this week. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In order to resist the devil, in, in order to engage in this kind of spiritual warfare, it requires us to be sober-minded, which means serious, right? serious about the right things, serious about the important things, and to not treat things like spiritual warfare or the devil or any truth of scripture as something trivial. We have to be sober-minded or serious. We need to be watchful. That means we pay attention. We know what our weaknesses are. We know what our temptations are. We know the things that trigger us. We know the people that we shouldn't be with. We've got to be watchful for the attacks that are coming from the enemy. We have to do this because the devil prowls, stalking us, seeking to devour us. So what do we do? We are called to resist him, right? Resist him, which means, listen, you can resist him. But you can only resist him by faith, Right? Resist him firm in your faith, meaning not by the flesh, not in your own strength, not with your own creativity, we think we're resisting the devil when we distract us with things that keep us away from one particular temptation. That's not resisting the devil. Resisting the devil by being strong in the faith is refusing, rejecting his temptations and his lies by holding fast to the word of God. It's choosing Christ in the moment rather than choosing sin. And we do this knowing that we're gonna get hurt because it's a fight. You ever been in a fight? They're not fun. You get hurt. If you don't get hurt, you weren't really in a fight. You just kind of beat somebody up, which might make you the bully, by the way. If you've ever been in a fight, man, you're going to get... I got my first black eye in fifth grade uh, by Dan Dixon, and uh, it hurt. 
really bad, and I had it coming. Uh, but I got a big old black eye, and I went to the nurse with this big old black eye. I was all weeping, and, uh, and I sat there for a while, and she looked at me, and she went, and then she ignored me, and I just sat there with this big black eye, right? Uh, I should have known getting into a tussle with this guy is going to result in me getting hurt. Any fight, you're going to get hurt. If this is spiritual warfare, you're going you're gonna to take some shots, but greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? You, you are going to suffer for a time, but, but listen to the promise. The promise is, is that God will confirm us and strengthen us and establish us. The gates of hell will not prevail because it's Christ who builds his church. That means he builds up not only local congregations, it means he builds up his people. The devil is real and he is a real problem. We don't focus on the devil, we focus on Christ. But if we ignore the devil, then we are in danger of not just being tricked, but perhaps even to some degree, being devoured. There is no destruction for the Christian. We've been forgiven, we are reconciled to God, but there is danger. So let's pay attention to the vision. The vision warns us that the devil who sought to kill Christ and failed is now seeking to devour us. And our hope, our confidence, our aim is all in glorifying Jesus Christ by resting in all that he has accomplished and be, by being equipped to resist the devil by standing firm in the faith that he has given us. And this we do together, not alone. We're called to fight this as a fellowship, not as individuals. So let's look to Christ who does reign and loves his church and we will experience victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would not only comfort us in the midst of our temptations and trials, but that you would strengthen us. Lord, would you equip us, ready our feet and our hands for the fight that we must engage in. We pray, Lord, that your protection would keep us safe from all real harm, lasting harm. And that when we do suffer, Lord, that we would suffer well for your glory and for righteousness' sake. In Jesus' name, amen.